Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we have a survivor named Rachel. And Rachel was in a relationship with a narcissist that helped her get sober. Does that sound confusing? Because it was for Rachel too. Come find out how this ultimate trust-building event had Rachel chasing a dangling carrot for the entirety of her relationship. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of narcissistic abuse. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning in to this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It's that simple. And now before we get to our interview, I just want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In our Facebook group this week, we actually had a pretty amazing week. We helped support this one specific person, and I think the whole entire group rallied around her, and we did a really good job. So a shout out to all of you for helping out there this week. And also, a reminder, if you haven't left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., leave us a five-star written review as it helps out with our show when it comes to rankings. Now, once again, I have put a bit of a moratorium on our recordings because my vetting call and recording call schedule is pretty booked up to the end of the month. If you still want to send us your story, please do so, but I can't make any promises that will end up recording. Not every episode makes it out to air for various reasons. So if you still want to be on the show, the quickest way to be part of our show is if you want to read a letter to your narcissist and be part of our letters to our narcissist compilation episode. We have a voicemail recorder on our website to record. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right-hand side of the page, and it's always floating around. It's hard to miss. There's a button that says Send Voicemail. Press it, and away you'll go. It records up to five minutes if you need to record more. Press it twice, three times, four times, as many times as you need. We're accumulating these letters for a volume two of that episode, so send those voicemails in. If you don't want to send it and read it yourself, you can send it to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com for myself or my old pal, Melissa, to read your letter for you. And before we begin, socially, as sometimes people want to know what I'm up to, I saw old friends this week. That was fun. I hadn't seen them in around five months, so it's been a while, so it was nice to see them. Also, I went to the movies this week. I always love going to the movies. I saw the sequel to The Shining called Dr. Sleep, and I loved it. I really did. I went in with no expectations, and I came out a big, big fan. So that's all, re- that's all I really did this week. That was it. And now, I'm going to get out of my own way. Here is my interview with Rachel 
and I'll check back in when it's all over. With me today, I have Rachel. How are you, Rachel? Hey, doing pretty well. How are you? I am doing pretty good. So before we get started, we talked on the phone. We did a pre-call about a week and a half ago, something like that, two weeks ago. And we discussed your story and how we were going to lay it out. So this is our first episode. We were going to try and make it as filmic as possible. And we're going to discuss your story as if it were a three-act play or movie. So uh, I'm going to hand over the floor to you, and uh, it is Act 1. And Act 1, we are going to discuss how your narcissist gained your trust. The floor is now yours. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, and I'm into it. I'm super dramatic, so that works for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So I guess I'll just dive in. Um, so I met my now ex-partner, I guess like... A little over two years ago now, two and a half years ago, something like that. And we met at work, um, and we hit it off immediately, straight out the gate, you know, zero to 60, which I, which I think is a pretty typical thing um, in these types of dynamics. And, you know, at the beginning, it was to use sort of an unfortunately uh, common phrase, too good to be true a little bit, right? It was... Um, you know, everything that I'd wanted in a partner. And, and also to be clear, like, she appears outwardly to be um, really, really compassionate and, and community-oriented and involved and in a lot of ways is, right? Like, in that way where it's like, well, um, the, reality of it, the reality of this ostensibly is, right? But the motivations are kind of where it gets a little murky. Um but, yeah, and I found all of that incredibly alluring, right? I was like, oh, my gosh, she's a compassionate person who who gets it, right, and whose um, sort of family history was was uh, as tumultuous as my own. You know, her dad was a narcissist, actually, um, and we bonded over that. You know, I remember we went out one night to a bar, and there was a, a young woman sitting next to us at, at the bar, and she looked at her and she was like, oh, my gosh, I really like your purse. And my ex was like, oh, here, just take it. And, you know, the woman was like, oh, wait, what? No, I don't want it. She was like, no, 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 please just take it, whatever. And I was so sorry. I just like, oh, my, that's incredible, blah, blah, blah. And then that night also we talked about this film that she had made about her dad, right, and how he was um, pretty much just unable to show up and be the kind of parent or person that a, a kid would need. And, um, you know, the whole point of it was that she had asked him, you know, at one point, you know, or, or she was asking him all these questions and he just came back at her and said, what do you want from me? Right. And, and, and she was left bereft of any sort of, you know, reconciliation or, or uh, being met halfway. And we, again, like I said, we really bonded over that. My mom, uh, was also incredibly distant and um, pretty narcissistic and uh, abandoned, you know, my brother and sister and I at a very young age. Um, so, yeah, there was that that sort of understanding that I felt we shared. And very quickly we moved in together. We moved in together at, like, th the three-month marker, roughly. And, um, yeah, it was, I think, 
as that happened, things started popping up that were a little bit um, kind of red flaggy, you know. And I, I should mention also that throughout this time, I was drinking very heavily. Um, I was using drugs, um, not as heavily, but but frequently enough that it was problematic, right? So and, do, do you recognize yourself right now as a uh, addict at all? Is that something that's in your mind? Uh, and besides that aspect of everything, do you uh, are you out of control uh, in this? Uh, like, are you partying together? Yeah. So, so currently, to address the first part of that, I recognize myself as someone who is in recovery, right, from from drug and alcohol abuse and. You know, all recoveries are subjective, and I want to acknowledge that up front and, and say that mine um, mine involves a, a total abstinence, right? But I do acknowledge and recognize harm reduction as being equally important to recovery communities and, and that kind of thing. But um, at the time, we were partying together, but it wasn't really her thing. Like, she was doing it to spend time with me, uh, and it was actually interfering with, like, her schoolwork and stuff, and she'd always been a really sort of dedicated student and perfectionist student. Um, and so it was a little bit problematic even. And, you know, the first time that she stayed over at my house, and this is when it really, like, the intimacy of this specific um, aspect of our relationship really bloomed was when the first night that she was going to stay over at my house, I, like, begged her to say, you know, like, come on, please, blah, blah, blah. And then I ended up being up until 7 a.m. in the kitchen doing, you know, drugs with my friends and whatever. And she was really hurt by that. Uh, what kind of drugs and, were you doing? Uh, cocaine and alcohol. Okay. Maybe Molly, but prob- probably just cocaine. I can't, I can't remember. Okay. Um, yeah. But, and then, if, you know, the next day I, I was, of course, like sleeping until like 2 or 3 p.m. And she showed up at my house and came in my room and was like, hey, that really wasn't okay. I kind of laughed it off, you know, like, ah, yeah, I know, it's so crazy, right? And she was really the first person to look at me and say, this isn't, this isn't funny. Like, this isn't something that we should just laugh about and let it go. Like, this is something that, um, uh, that's really damaging for you and that I think you need to look at a little bit more closely. And that meant, you know, it was almost like those were the words I've been waiting to hear from someone because I didn't know how to say them to myself. I didn't. Uh, and this is this will certainly be a recurring theme, but I didn't love myself enough to be able to say it to myself or to think that I deserved better than what I was doing um, at that point in my life. And, of course, there was that whole, like, well, I got it under control. It's totally fine thing that we as humans tend naturally to do for whatever evolutionary reason. But, yeah, so it then was kind of um, kind of a perpetual conversation that would come back up now and again, um, especially when I would use pretty heavily. Um, and at this point we were living together also. And, you know, she'd started bringing up exes and hanging out with exes. And I was incredibly self-conscious, um, you know, cause I was also the first woman that she'd been with. And, you know, it, it, there was, I mean, I brought, I brought, also I want to make the point of saying like, I brought my own stuff, right? Like I didn't come to this as has probably already been made clear that I would like to um, sort of elucidate just for, for the benefit of, I don't know, whatever. But, uh, you know, I brought my own, I brought my own baggage. I brought my own issues into this, into this dynamic. And, um, 
Yeah. So, so, so you know, for the for the purposes, did, I, I, sorry for one second. So the, for the purposes uh, of of this uh, aspect of everything, you are um, you are an addict. You are currently feel very close to this person that you have very similar traits going on. Uh, your partner in this scenario uh, now is uh, not is going to get to the point where she doesn't want you to uh, do drugs anymore and is going to help you or at least guide you on the path to become a clean and sober individual. Yeah, we had, I don't think we at that point discussed it that explicitly. Like it was never like, well, you're not going to do it ever again anymore. It was more like, Hey, you got to get this under control or like you have to, it was more, it, it felt like a negotiation, right? Like how it was very, um, a very harm reductive approach. So it was like, well, I want to get to the point where I can just have two beers and then be okay. Uh, which is a lofty goal for a lot of people, but it was not something that I was capable of. Um, and I am sort of more of the opinion that if you want to be able to enjoy something that casually, you probably need a relatively sustained period of abstinence. But yeah, at that point it was just um, more conversation around like not being out until seven in the morning. So for everyone who's listening and might have gone through this experience of, of, or maybe not, not has gone through this experience in this similar way, do you do you feel that the way she's going about it makes you feel more cared about? Yeah, it did. It did absolutely. And that and she I has your best so, interest at heart. Yeah, totally. And it was also very contextual, right? Like I sort of by by the nature of addiction, you end up surrounding yourself with people who don't care about you that much. I mean, you kind of have to because anybody that would would be like, "Yo, what are you doing?" Um so the juxtaposition of having this one person who was like, hey, I care about you enough that I'm going to say this harsh stuff to you versus the people who had been um, engaging with me in these destructive behaviors, right, or allowing me to – and maybe allowing me isn't the right the right phrase just because, you know, it totally gets rid of my own agency. But you know what I mean. So, well, yeah, I, I, listen, I've real- been, I've been uh, in the situation where I just want to keep that party going. I don't care who I'm with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so it's like, are you going to do it with me? You're not going to do it with me? Uh, maybe right. I'm just going to do it by myself because everyone's gone now. But so you, your partner has shown this care for you. And now with all of what's gone on from the beginning, as far as the relationship uh, of how you understand how she was brought up, she understands how you brought up. And now this trust factor that's that now she cares about me. She wants to help me uh, remove drugs from my life. So your trust has now been built up. Like you can't get more trustworthy than you have right now that this person cares for me. And of course must have my best interests going forward. Yeah, and I think actually, like, it it happened more, like, the trust thing, it's like, I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This is the, you know, pinnacle of of another human trust, you know, that I can trust, whatever, happened actually when my uh, total sobriety came about. And then I went to my first NA meeting, and it was after that when I met up with her, with my ex, um, and she said to me, you know, she's like, I am going to choose to do this with you. I'm going to choose to, you know, help you through this, like walk you through this process that it really kind of, uh, that was like, a, that was a big, that was a really big thing. That was where it was like, oh, this is the person that I trust. This is the person who, you know, uh, is, is going to show up for me when I need them to. 
And, you know, cause my family hadn't even really done that or, or been able to do that. And I don't want to, you know, I was incredible at, car- at, at uh, compartmentalizing. So, you know, but yeah, I just, it was, it was that void that I desperately needed someone to step into that she did. And yeah, so I'm getting a little emotional. Um, yeah. And it was, you know, it was all bad after that. Well, so now, <laughs> so, 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 so for everyone now uh, listening, for people that don't understand, like who have never gone through this, who are new to, to this subject matter, uh, this is where, you know, you know, Rachel fully trusts her partner. And it's not just a trust. They've been given a heroine of sorts. This is a, a like an unbelievable trust that has just been bond, that has bonded you. It wasn't uh, specifically uh, love bombing in other ways people deal with things. This is a love bomb in a trust bomb uh, where this is something you've never received your whole life. You're getting this feeling you've never received your whole entire life from this person and that is attached to you to them in a way you haven't been attached to anyone before. And, uh, as far as this being now the movie aspect, uh, act two will now begin for people to understand, um, you know, this is where testing of boundaries occurs and not just testing of boundaries to see how far, uh, you can go, but to, to really see what, um, when I say boundaries, they're now going to start poking holes uh, or your partner's going to start poking holes in you to see what sticks, what doesn't, what they can get away with. Uh, for anyone who's uh, listening and because we're trying to paint a picture here of how someone can dissect another human being psychologically, um, for them to stay for so long and, and, and the ways they go about it. And, you know, right now the, you know, people look at this person as a narcissist and, and you as a survivor of a narcissist, I look at it as this is a true crime and we have a perpetrator, like a bank robber and you are a bank and you are a bank vault and they are a master locksmith and you are the lock. And now they're going to try and pick you apart, uh, little by little. So now I will stop that and I'll let you continue. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard. You know, I think it's a, it's a great analogy. It's just, it's really hard, um, really hard to hear it, but in, I guess such a a clinical way, right. Um, because there was, there was so much intimacy involved in that process. I mean, it's, it, it's necessarily there just because of how vulnerable a time it is. Um, early recovery, I mean, um, yeah. And it, you know, it, for those who haven't experienced, uh, or, you know, any kind of recovery, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily just have to be from, from drugs or alcohol, but any sort of, you know, uh, upending of one's various mechanisms for coping, right. Or that really fragile equilibrium we managed to establish through the ways that are available to us. And, you know, that's what I did. It was like, I'd had all of these substances, uh, keeping me sane and, you know, safe ostensibly. And all of a sudden they were gone. And so what came flooding back in were anxiety and PTSD and unresolved trauma. And so I was, uh, suffering, right. For, for lack of a better word, just, I would drive home from work every day and, crawl into bed and cry and just it was almost every day I was having panic attacks and 
just really struggling to be a person. And she showed up for that, right? Like she did what she could. And um, it's, it's difficult because I don't remember a lot of that time very well either, just because of how it, it's kind of like <laughs> to be sort of cliche, but it's kind of like being born and you're like, Oh my God, everything is so much. This is ridiculous. How do people exist? Um, and you know, at the same time, though, like, while that was going on and while I was feeling so just naked, right, like, it, oh, my God, I'm remembering, too, just how, yeah, but she would bring up her exes a lot and she would compare me to them. Um, because also what runs rampant amidst any sort of new and open space like that emotionally are your insecurities, obviously, and, you know, a big one for me, as I think I mentioned earlier, was like her having men around her and her life and sort of orbiting her in these strange ways that didn't always make sense for me. And that had been a sort of um, peripher- peripheral issue since the very beginning, right? Like there were these guys that I was like, what are they doing here? Like, this doesn't make sense that they would be showing up in your life like this. Like, it's not, it's a strange thing. Like we were at a bar I ran into her at a bar one time and she was there with this father of a kid she'd been nannying. Um, and he was like very obviously hitting on her. And I was just like, what is this is a strange thing, but it was really early on in, in our relationship or in my knowing her. And so, you know, and afterward I was like, that was kind of weird. And she's like, yeah, he knows that's not okay. I don't know what that was about. And, you know, in retrospect, I've kind of come back to that a few times and been like, people don't just, randomly do that you know like it was just strange so it was a lot of that and it was a lot of also uh like she showed me one time like she was like oh this guy just won't stop messaging me it's, I don't understand it's so ridiculous and she showed me all of these messages from this guy who was just like please where are you babe let's hang out whatever and I was like okay first of all you know that I'm super insecure about this second of all I, I think even, I just think it's weird. Like if you're really not like, why don't you block this guy? Or if you're really that bothered by it. Um, As someone who's been through somewhat of a similar scenario with someone who's done the t- exact same little types of things where they say, I don't know why this person's doing this or I don't know why this person's reacting this way or this person's like thinks that I'm into it. And I don't know why that would happen uh, for everyone out there listening. They do know why. <laughs> and they have set it up that way and they play the part and then when they don't want to play that part anymore they get uh they come up with all these reasons of why this other person is is crazy so that person who they say oh gross like i don't know why this person's bothering me most likely and i'm sure it happened to you they actually were flirting with them and in their mind like that never happened when it came to uh, them wanting to get upset that now their time is being taken by this person or they, you know, it, it's all, um, I guess in a way they have this two way street philosophy. And then when they want to, it's like, no, only my way kind of counts now. And, yeah. and for those people, they're probably as confused as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, and it made me feel absolutely crazy. Right. In, in so many different ways. And it was a lot. So it was a lot of that. It was also, Oh my gosh. Like there was this one guy specifically, um, that 
that was, it was sort of contentious with us. And I, I was having a day where I was literally in bed by seven because my anxiety was just so bad. I couldn't, I just couldn't be. And she brought him into our house. Like as I was laying there, just like incapable of, of humaning. And I heard his voice and all the lights were off. And I was just like, is she serious? Like, is she really bringing him here? Like what is happening? And, you know, he didn't come in because I was, you know, trying to sleep, but it was just so strange. I was like, why would you think that that was an acceptable thing to like do right now? I, I don't know, but it was a lot of that. It was a lot of also, and like I said, and we'll continue to say, like, I, I was not in a place where I could be a good partner. Like I was totally just, I don't just destroyed as a human. And so, but I felt that also, like I, was I felt so ashamed and so guilty um, about the ways in which I couldn't show up. And she would point them out to me, you know, fairly frequently and in ways that were not necessarily as compassionate as I would, would find appropriate or that I might do with someone else. And, you know, it's hard for me though, to, to be just because I still appreciate so much, like for having been there during that time, you know, like I think that, Sorry, getting emotional again. Um, I think that we find certain things when we need them. And I needed her then. I did. And I understand now that, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but what I needed to move me out of that space, out of that that space of using and uh, shame was somebody to say, hey, what you're doing is, is bad, right? It's You should feel bad about this. And the distinction that I want to make is that I was not changing because I loved myself, right? I was changing because I hated myself. And she fed into that. And I don't think that it was, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't feel initially intentional, but uh, yeah. And I, I'm, it was, it was, it's an important distinction to make, I guess is what I want to say. Like the reason that she felt so important then was that she reflected to me how bad I was and I didn't want to be that person anymore. So while it was incredibly helpful and I am appreciative of that time, it, it, it was not always loving. And you know, that showed up in the, in the messages from the guys and then her choosing to spend time anywhere, but with me and telling me that, and it was, you know, it was, it was all bad. It was bad. She would kick me out a lot too. I asked a friend of mine recently sort of in preparation for this. I was like, Hey, do you remember like how many times I had to come stay with you? And her response was more than 10, but fewer than 20, but she couldn't remember uh, the exact number, and yeah, I, I'm eternally grateful for that human. Also, she <laughs> saved me in in every imaginable way. But so during this yeah. time, you're being compared to other people. Uh, you're seeing uh, men go in and out. Were there ex partners that were around? Yeah, yeah. Um, another ex of hers who when we hung out with him one time, it was just like, 
the interaction between them and she touched his back at one point and I was like, that's not a friendly thing, you know, and, and just his energy and his orientation, his palpable orientation toward her was indicative to me of there being something not entirely resolved and intentionally so. Right. Uh, and it was, it was uncomfortable, but it was never enough that I could say anything about it, especially because, you know, she'd already made me feel like crap for, for being so insecure about those things. Right. And well, my other partners never, never felt this way. So I'm not used to having to deal with this kind of thing or, you know, those comments. Uh, and also she was constantly threatening to leave, right? Like within the first three months of our relationship, I got fired from a job because I, you know, I don't know if you can imagine this, but in my addiction, I was not a sterling employee. <laughs> yeah. I was just basically being dumb. And so I got fired, which was like super upsetting though. Nobody loves being like, Hey, you're so bad at this. You can't be here anymore. So yeah, it was, it was bad. Uh, and I was upset about it, but we, and I went out with her and she got upset with me for not expressing my emotions with her and like told me that I was using her as a tool and that I needed to leave. Uh, and all of a sudden I was just like, I don't understand what's happening. And the next day, you know, she was like, Oh, I'm sorry about that, but you have to communicate with me. And I was just like, okay, yeah, I get it. Sorry. So, you know, I would then try to be open with her and communicate with her about, you know, feeling insecure around these exes or these, these men. And, you know, she's like, well, that's ridiculous. And you should, you know, I can't believe you would. And then she just sort of made me feel really bad about expressing things to her. So it was, it was a really difficult thing to try to navigate. Right. Especially as this person who was just trying to figure out how to be myself. I was like, I ended up figuring out not how to be myself, but constantly trying to figure out how to be who she wanted me to be, uh, which I was, perfectly primed for in that new and vulnerable space. Yeah. So we also went to Ohio uh, to visit my family for Christmas and she threatened to leave when we were there because she didn't like my friends, um, you know, which was, which was fair a little bit, right? Like I didn't really, they weren't close friends. They were people that I used with um, and kind of found similar things funny with, so, it, you know, that, and what was so insidious about all of it, too, is that there was just enough truth in all the things that she was saying that it made me want to hop on board. And, you know, you couple that with the truth piece, with the rather the trust piece of this person obviously has my best interest at heart because of, you know, the things that she's done for me before, the ways she's chosen to show up already. Uh, and it was just, you know, a recipe almost for you know, the isolation that I ended up experiencing down the line. And, you know, also with other friends who would come and visit me as I moved out to California, um, she would kind of say bad things about me to my friends. Like, I don't know if she expected them to not come to me then and be like, hey, so here's the thing. And it was just, it was so confusing. Like, what if, because also I, I wasn't completely tuned out to the realities of what was happening a lot. I mean, in a lot of way, important ways I was, but I still had that sort of little voice that was like, that is not super normal. Right. And yeah, I would communicate that with friends or, or a therapist. And, you know, and it was, they were always just kind of like, yeah, that's not a, that's not a chill thing. That isn't something that is typical 
of this, this kind of relationship. And I was like, uh, but I kept making excuses and I kept, I kept staying. And I think that is kind of an important, um, part of this, but maybe that we can talk about a little later. Um, you know, and we didn't last super long into my recovery. I think I was maybe June, July, August, September, October, five months sober when we finally, when we broke up, broke up. Uh, and, you know, immediately she was like, well, you need to move out and told me that she was willing to fight me about it. Right. And it was the apartment that I had found and we moved into together, but you know, I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, you know, I'll leave, I'll find somewhere else. And even in that moment when I was like, okay, yes, I get it. Let's just not do this anymore. Whatever. She was like, well, am I not worth fighting for? I was like, are you kidding me? Like what, how, what do you mean? Like, it was just so confusing. And I, 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 I was like, I don't know who you want or need me to be. I don't know what that is. And I never did. And it was also like, to backtrack a little bit, like she would, I, I don't, maybe not. I'll say, yeah, I'll talk about that in a minute, but we broke up and I remember I was staying on my friend's couch and I was, you know, getting, this was for a few weeks. And I was getting like a parking ticket. I was getting parking tickets all the time because I didn't know which side of the street I was supposed to be on. I was um, trying to take care of my dog. Uh, at that time I was like coming home. I was getting her groceries, uh, still my, getting my ex groceries at this point. Um, you know, just trying to live my life out of, out of my car and out of, of a friend's couches. And I remember at one point calling her and being like, Hey, I need to, you know, come over tomorrow and do something. And she said to me, she's like, Hey, you need to tell me what time, because I need some stability in this. And I remember just thinking, I'm living out of a goddamn target bag. What do you mean you need some stability in this? Like, is that a serious thing that just came out of your mouth? Um, but I was so broken and so, I mean, that breakup destroyed me, right? Like I, it needed to happen for a lot of reasons. My, my recovery being one of them. Yeah, it was, um, it was really hard. And so I was bouncing around trying to find a place to stay. Uh, and she called me all the time. Like we didn't, we were broken up, but we weren't really broken up. Right. Like she called me all, almost every night or I called her. We were talking pretty constantly. Um, I remember her saying even to me at one point, she's like, well, breakups don't just, end. it's not just an end. Like it takes, it's a process. It takes time. Um, and a friend of mine had said to me around that time, like, no, that's how breakups work is it's just, that's it. Like you, you've made a conscious choice to not be in one another's lives. And that's what that means. And now I'm like, oh yeah, of course, having that boundary is the appropriate emotionally safe and, you know, mature thing to do. But at the time I had no idea, right? Like I hadn't had sober sex with someone. I certainly hadn't had, uh, you know, a, a solid mature relationship with somebody either. And from my vantage point, she had, and she knew what it was supposed to look like. And I trusted that again, like going back to the footing that I'd found in my, in her being there when I needed someone the most, um, so after that, when I would try to set a boundary because it was really painful for me, you know, and I would not respond quickly enough or I would just be sort of glib, right, or um, short, 
she would call me out and be like, well, why are you behaving? Why, why aren't you letting me, you know, I, like she asked me, and, and, you know, there were the manufactured reasons of seeing, seeing each other. Like, well, can you bring me my computer charger? Can you do this? And so I tried to, I remember taking her, her charger and I was like, okay, here you go. And I was just going to leave. And she looked so hurt and so upset. And I was just like, what? And she's like, well, you're not even going to hug me. Why are you, why are you behaving this way? And I'm like, you broke up with me. Like, what do you mean? Why am I behaving this way? Like, what do you, I don't, again, know what you want from me, but I so desperately wanted to be what she wanted from me. Right. And so that space went on for six months, six or seven months of that constant push and pull and push and pull and, you know, reward and devalue. And she withheld her affection whenever it was convenient and showed me affection when she felt like it or needed it. Um, so at this point, it, um, in this stage, her way of, devaluing you or testing your boundary was she knew that uh i guess you had your relationship with your family that wasn't great she knew that abandonment i guess is a big part of your psyche correct yeah huge so she knows that she can move away and that you'll you chased in a in a, in a strange way did you chase you have an anxious attachment towards her Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. So she's doing the pull away. She knows how far she can pull away, how far she can withdraw completely. And then when she really, I guess, did she, you, did you suspect that she had other people that she was hanging around with or other, as the technical term for narcissistic abuse, like the supply around there? Were you s- suspecting anything? You know, yes and no. I just, I would ask her about it, right? I'd be like, well, are you like, who is this person? Are you seeing this? Or, or are you seeing and her constant response was always, when would I have time? When would I have time to do that? You know, or well, you have my passwords to everything. Why would, why would I, you know, why would you suspect me when you have, you're always here, you have constant access, which also I should mention. So I talked about the guy who was messaging her constantly and she's like, I don't understand. Um, so I, went through her messages at one point and this was when she was like saying, talking constantly about dudes just messaging her. And I was in my terrible brain on fire state and I'm not proud of it. I, you know, it's, it's something that embarrasses me still even saying it out out loud right now. Uh, and I just looked at the one from him and yeah, they'd been, they had been flirting for a long time talking about hooking up and, whatever. And I guess they hadn't. And, you know, it had stopped when we officially got together, but there was a reason that he was messaging her, right? Like it wasn't like, Oh, the guy came out of the ether. I don't know. So that was super shitty and it really felt bad. And I, and I told her immediately too. I was like, Hey, I did a bad thing. I went through your messages. I feel like crap. I'm super sorry. Um, you know, I'm embarrassed, all this stuff. And initially she was like, you know what? It's okay. I understand. We will talk about it. And then that was kind of like the eye of the hurricane. right? Uh, And then, you know, from there on out, it was like, you know, I can't trust you. You, no one has ever betrayed me like this. I've always been able to trust my other partners. Um, You know, that kind of thing. I needed to borrow her iPad one day for something and she said to me in this way that made me feel like a five-year-old. She just, she said over her shoulder to me, you know, the rules, 
And in that moment, I had to bite my lip so hard to not just say, I would rather fucking die than use your iPad. Um, but yeah, and it was just, and so from then on out, though, I was so terrified. I would never go near her electronics, ever, right? Which obviously there's just the, the baseline of, like, you don't do that with other people's stuff. But also I just felt like a piece of trash because I had crossed that, that boundary before, and I, and I was so ashamed of it. And she knew that and, and repeatedly brought it up as a, as a means of controlling, you know, that, that I don't know, that aspect of it. So... So yeah, I did have suspicions, but I would never have have questioned it more legitimately than that, right? And I, and by design, that was kind of our dynamic. So, you know, it and we were still sleeping together through this whole this whole period, also. And toward the end, it became more and more apparent to me, like she would just. God, it was almost like within moments of one another, it would be back and forth. Like we were take, we took my dog to the vet one day cause she was throwing up and my part, my ex sat in the back with her and was like, Oh, it's like, she's our baby, you know? And like, kind of joked about it. She's like, Oh, you know, we're family. We're taking our kid to the doctor. Ha ha. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's kind of cute. Yeah. Okay. And then maybe an hour later I called her cause she had to go into work or something. And she was like, listen, I just need space. I just need space. I, I don't want to talk. I just need space. And I was like, what on earth? I was like, you were joking about us having a kid. I don't understand, like, how one can go from, like, this to that. And But every time she would say that, it, every time she'd say, well, I need space, it was like slashing my Achilles heel, you know? And I would try to – it was just so overwhelming and undermining simultaneously that I was just left without words, right? I was just like, oh. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, as you touched on earlier, abandonment is a huge part of, of my psyche and the work that I'm doing now to repair, you know, my mom left when I was really young and I had a, a close grandparent die around the same time. And, uh, yeah. And, and I've, I've, there's the idea of what is it? Compulsion repetition, right? Where we seek out um, the situations that damaged us at younger ages and then attempts to regain control over them in our adulthood. And I've certainly, certainly done that in, in my adult relationships. And, and she's an example of that. Um, and yeah, so it, it, it got bad. I want to say really quickly, but it didn't, it, it sort of bled out slowly. Uh, and then, and it, it was a lot of this, like for her birthday too, um, I got her like the year before I'd been really broke and hadn't been able to get her much of anything. And she'd been upset about it. And so the next year I got her these earrings that I knew from like a jeweler that I knew she really liked. I got her tickets to a show that we really wanted to go to. I took her out to dinner at one of her favorite restaurants. Um, and then a couple days later on her actual birthday, we were going to go out and just like grab food at a Safeway first and she was like no don't go here and I was like oh it's okay we can just run in and suddenly it was about me not listening to her or not seeing her and she demanded that I take her home or that I leave uh and she didn't want to see me and I was I was so inconsiderate and how could I not understand um 
And I was just flabbergasted. Like it was one of those things where I was like, this is not a rational exchange. And I didn't know how, like, how do you engage that? You know, I was just like, I have no idea what's going on and I can't fix that. And this was like two days after I'd done all these, you know, really kind things for her and a gesture of my, you know, my love for who she is and like what, whatever. And then that night she posted a picture of her that I took before the show at the restaurant in the earrings I got her with a caption about how this year was going to be all about her. And, you know, she was moving forward and, and whatever. And she didn't talk to me for like a week. And I was just like, I have no idea what is going on or what I did. But if I were to say that to her, you know, it would be like, well, of course you don't, because you don't see me and you don't listen to me. And as someone who, I mean, nobody else in my life had ever said that to me, right? Like nobody else was ever like, well, you just don't pay enough attention. Like you just don't see other people. I had been somebody who was always compassionate to a fault, right? And there's absolutely a codependent quality in that or quotient in that that I don't want to skirt over because it is important. Um, But it was still like, because I considered that to be a very fundamental aspect of who I am, uh, was and am, it was blindsiding to hear that constantly. Like, well, you just don't see me. You just don't hear me. You just don't pay attention. You just don't whatever. And, and so constantly trying to pay attention to every little detail and still being wrong constantly was just, it made me feel crazy. I felt crazy. And also because she was so um, good to other people, like it's for her friends. She would constantly take them, you know, soup if they were sick or, or, uh, volunteer at the local whatever. And so I was like, well, if I'm the only one that she's being this way to, I must be the problem. Like I'm, there must be something wrong with me that I'm being treated this poorly. Um, you know, and she would call me chubby a lot, which I'm a fit person, you know, and it was, and I would say, Hey, that makes me uncomfortable. Like, I, I know it's, you don't mean it like that, but it makes me uncomfortable. And she's like, oh, no, what is a joke? It's just, you know, I, this is what we say. She's uh, Middle Eastern. She's like, this is just how we, you know, we joke, whatever. And she would keep saying it. And finally I gave up, you know, and a lot of it was just a slow surrender, like a slow giving up of things you don't realize are gone until the other person is holding them across the room from you. And you're like, oh, that was mine. Why is that over there? Uh, so you were yeah, slow. Then- you were slowly driven into the ground by all these little things, little things that were said, little actions like this, that that may not have been giant things for other people to even see or even notice, but over time they took their toll on you to the point where you didn't fight. You didn't even care to fight back anymore in, in a certain sense. Like your defense was so yeah. done she hit your fence in certain ways where you were just tired. You didn't even want to fight. Yeah. Yeah. In a certain way. Absolutely. And I didn't even really notice it either until friends would say, yo, your self-confidence has just plummeted. Like what is happening or what is going on? And again, I attributed all of that though to, you know, being in early recovery or not being good enough because God, wasn't that the constant theme? It was like, you know, I never, never, even in cooking us meals, there was always something wrong. 
right? Or in getting dressed in the morning. I never, I never got dressed well enough. Or I would change your shirt or put this on. Or It's always something. Things. Yeah. And, it, and the thing is, though, it, it, it felt loving. Like, it could feel loving. Like, well, I want you to look good, so put this on. Or, well, if you, just, if you use this, it'll taste. You know, like, these things it, it, that it, can it, be trusted. It was controlling behavior presented in a trustworthy, loving way. Right. Yeah. So for everyone who's um, listening who's not been through any of this before, as far as like this section, people always ask, like, why, do, why would you stay? Why would this? And, you know, you, there's been a, such a trust that is built up in the big trust event that has occurred and, and the testing of boundaries to see what, uh, like the vulnerabilities that you have specifically, uh, this person has learned what they can and can do and get away with based upon that. And they, and you know, you're, uh, I'm speaking to other people, uh, her defenses. And I say her, I mean, Rachel's defenses have been slowly, uh, dismantled piece by piece by piece, slowly in a way where now she thinks she's going crazy and up is not up. Up is down, left is right, and you don't know. Uh, you're 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 uneasy. You know the way you're being treated can't be seen by other people, but you know it's wrong. And now you're 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 not. Now you're just tired because you just don't know anymore. And because of the other life event that has gone on with sobriety, and uh, for people who don't understand. Uh, what it's like to get sober when you get sober for your first time or your second time or your third time. Um, yeah. the, the toughest thing you have to do when you get sober, because I have been there, is deal with yourself mm-hmm. for the first time in your life. And if, it oh. is, and it, if, if it's the first time in your life and it has been, you know, since what, 15 years old, I'm going to guess with you, 14 like really like sober, like not, you know, had a joint or anything to, or a drink, um, to get sober for the first time, dealing with yourself for the first time is scary. And it's strange because you actually have to feel, and then you don't know if what you're feeling, is this how I'm supposed to feel? Is this what normal people feel like? Because this isn't, you know, usually I would, you know, get drunk or I would get high and you're, you're trying to find your way within that. And I, you know, one of the big things about being in AA or any anonymous situation is they tell you not to get into a relationship uh, because that yeah. you know, right away they say like, that's the worst thing you can kind of do. Because your your feelings are everywhere, then you you know you might pick the wrong person uh, when in mm-hmm. that because you're in such a vulnerable position, and so you already had all these things going on, and with the sober event, it's an extra vulnerability for you to be uh, taken advantage of. So yeah, you know, for everyone who's listening, that's kind of this is why someone stays. And this is one case in a very in subtle manner that, that it's kind of going on. For her, for Rachel, it's not subtle. For other people watching, they might not be able to see it. So now at this point, uh, I guess part two or act two has occurred. Uh, and then act three mm-hmm. happens. Is it your act three or normal act three where brazen acts start occurring and then it ends? Or yeah. so, so start explaining how act three would work for you. Yeah, so also I want to kind of bring 
back into the uh, front of the consciousness of this story is that we were not together, like, at this point. And so there was always that carrot at the end of the stick being dangled in front of me, which was, you know, it's, it's, you're just a better partner, or if you just do this, we'll get back together. Or, you know, if we just give it some time, we can get back together. Or, you know, this is a fun middle ground, but we need to figure out what this is. Right. And so it was always, actually it was more that it was more like the constant threat of abandonment, which so, which is just the sort of boot on my psychological neck. And so that, you know, talking about the reasons why we stay was a huge part of it. It was just terrifying. And also because reality was encroaching, you know, I was beginning to put pieces together, but those pieces were so abhorrent that for them to come together as a resolute whole would have destroyed me, right, in, in what they could have meant in terms of who she really was. And so the denial factor also was huge, right? I was like, no, if all, uh, no, the only outcome here, conceivable outcome, is that we are back together and she goes back to who she was when we got together because... Otherwise, that means this deluge of terrible things is true. And that is not something that should be underestimated in terms of its, its power over a person. Um, and so it was, it was incredible. Uh, and, yeah, so toward the end, it was, it was very much sort of quicker turnarounds in terms of, okay, I like you. Okay. I love you. Let's spend time together. Never mind. I don't want you near me. Um, you know, go away, come here, go away, come here. And then I guess to sort of jump ahead a little bit, because all of that was just really painful and persistent. Um, and there were times too, where I would call and she would obviously not be where she said she was. Uh, and there was one time specifically when I went to like drop something off and she said she would be home, but she wasn't. And so I was like, well, you're lying, right? But you, oh, also her biggest thing throughout our whole relationship from day one was she always said, just don't lie to me. We can get through anything else. Just don't lie to me. And what you hear as a person when that is said to you is, oh, this is an honest person, Right. And that's the magic of it, right? Uh, and I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. And it also it also kept me accountable, which I'm also just an honest person to a fault sometimes. But so, again, it just didn't compute. Like, all of these things were so confusing and created so much fog and just, you know, and there was a time, too, where I was like, where are you? You know, because she wasn't where she said she would be. And she said, oh, well, I had a panic attack. And I was like, well, that's not really an answer. And also was like a perfect mirroring of the, the thing that I would have the most empathy for because I had so many panic attacks and I knew exactly what that was like. So in seeing that now, I'm like, did she even really have a panic attack? Like, or was this just a way of deflecting my curiosity or, or my, my, you know, like wanting to know where, what she was actually doing. And I still don't know. And a lot of this, um, process is about coming to the you know the just kind of settling into the reality that I'm never gonna know um but you know so toward the very end when I was try I was getting the apartment that I'm in now thank god it's it's oh man it's I'm so grateful to have the roommate that I do and the space that I do um but 
I stayed with her for a night before that happened. And her roommate actually had told me, she was like, Hey, I'm telling you this because I care about you and I think you're a good person. But she had a, a man stay over. Like somebody stayed. She's like, I don't know if anything happened, but but a man stayed in her room. And I was compl- you know, I was shattered. I was like, could that have happened? Like I don't like what what? It just floored me. And I reached out to her after that. Um, because I, I believe we'd been in like a no contact blip at that point, but she'd been trying to contact me. And so I reached back out and was like, can we talk? And we did. And she denied it. And I believed her. And, um, this was, this was a little bit earlier. So now coming back to like, I'm getting my new apartment and I stayed with her for another night and I had left her something like we had a conversation where it was like, no, she was like, no, we can't be together. We're not you know, this isn't going to happen. And I was like, oh, okay, that's whatever. That sucks. So then I had left her something the day before. Right. And, um, was like, well, I want that back now just because of what it was and the conversation that we had. So I went into her room to try to find it and it wasn't in her nightstand. So I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And so I checked the top drawer, which is where we like kept, you know, just whatever extras from the day and trinkets and such. And oh, I'm getting like my heart is like grazing talking about it. And I opened the top drawer and I found um, condom wrappers. Um, and it was this moment of just, I mean, I can't, I can't, it's impossible to describe to somebody who hasn't experienced the full gravity of almost a year's worth of effort and love and just desperate attempts at reconciliation weighing down in this way that is so impossible, but real. And the cognitive dissonance was overwhelmed. Like I literally, my brain shut down. Like um, I was just in this place of, well, that can't be though. Like that, how could she say these things to me and be this person when this is, this is, this is what this is. And, um, so I, I went and I tried, you know, to, I tried to calm down and I was like, do I talk to her about this? Do I just leave and absolutely never come back? Like, do I, what do I do? And I just started chain smoking cigarettes and, I took like three showers. I just, I wanted to breathe, right? Like I just wanted to be able to breathe. And finally it got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go get a drink. I'm, I can't do this. I cannot reconcile what has just happened with what has to be reality. Um, I, I told myself one of those really uh, amusing jokes that I think <laughs> we tell ourselves there. I was like, I'm not going to actually drink it. I'm just going to go get a bottle and I'll hold it. And that'll be somehow comforting. Um, so I got in my car to go do that. And I don't even know that I was really conscious in a lot of ways. And I was just, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm doing this thing. And so I drove uh, I started driving away and I made it about four blocks and it felt like something just like shook my car. And I guess I hit, I hit something, a giant pothole, whatever, but I got a flat tire. Um, 
And so I pulled off to this little side street and I just curled up in my back seat and tried to sleep. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I am, and, but, and I don't necessarily subscribe to like, Oh, you know, divine intervention or whatever. But, um, my sister put it in a, in a way to me that I thought was really lovely. And she said, you know, you've been trying and trying and trying and doing this thing and doing this thing. And finally, when you couldn't anymore, something else did it for you. And I felt really, really loved by that. Um, and so I did not relapse, which was a very good thing. It was divine intervention. And, uh, that really was. <laughs> yeah, it felt it felt important. Um, also, my check engine light came on, which was very, <laughs> which I thought was uh, apropos. But so, yeah, and so you know, after that, actually, she found me and took me home, and uh, was just so just sort of, I don't know if performative is the right word, but just sort of mechanical, I guess, in her dealing with me at that point. Like, I was still very much locked into a panic attack. I hadn't eaten anything since that morning. I hadn't taken my medicine. I hadn't, you know, I'd just been smoking and whatever. And so she was like, okay, well, let's get you food. Let's get you whatever. And there was something about, and she would just like text, you know, like as I was like shaking, like she would just be like casually texting. And then she would look at me and say, you know, what are you feeling right now? Like, what's, what are you feeling in your body? But it didn't feel sympathetic or empathetic or compassionate. It felt almost like, like an autopsy or, or, or an explorative um, mission into gaining something for future use. I don't know. It was just, it, or voyeuristic maybe. It was just, it didn't feel warm. Um, it was clinical. And Yeah, that's a perfect word. Yeah, it was, it was clinical. And, you know, and relating that back to her having told me that she had panic attacks, I was like, why do you want to know what my body feels like right now? Like, it was just strange. Um, and, you know, so I obviously confronted her about it. Actually, I don't even think that I did that night, but I, I, I brought up the, her roommate having told me, you know, that a man stayed over or whatever. And, you know, her responses were, well, if you don't believe me, why are you still here? Or, well, maybe she can take care of your anxiety or, you know, just really cruel things that I was still, again, just so, it was like the image that just popped into my head was like, my brain was just in the, the grips of these two giant hands and was being twisted. And I, I just didn't know what was real. And so I moved into my new place and she never texted me about how I was doing. She would always ask about my dog. She'd be like, well, okay, how's, how's Suki doing? How, how is she? Like, what's going on? Is she eating her food? And, you know, finally I said back to her, I was just like, I sent her a very long message. I was like, listen, I know what you did. I know that you're trying to lie to me about it. I'm not comfortable. Like you have been incredibly selfish and manipulative and, you know, whatever, whatever. And her response was essentially, you know, I called her out on, on having slept with, with different people and which had become, which I knew at that point definitively. Um, and I won't go into the, the how on those, but, uh, you know, and so I called her out and her response was, 
well, it sounds like you've made up your mind. I won't try to convince you otherwise. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, God, what a cheap-ass response. Like, are you, is that for real? Like, it was just so pitiful. Um, you know, and I tried to call her again at one point. So, like, I was just trying to get my stuff. Like, I was like, can I just have my things, please, so I can just not have you in my life? Uh, and she was never home or they were never outside or whatever. And so I just called her one day and I was like, do you have anything you want to tell me? Like, is, is there anything you want to say? Because this is, this is it little that I know, but you know, there I was doing my best. Um, you know, and she was like, I, I don't, you know, what do you, I, I don't, I don't know. What do you want me to say? And in that moment, I just flashed back to being in that bar with her and her talking to me about her narcissistic father saying, what do you want from me to her? And just the parallel was so overwhelming. And I was like, you cannot see it. Like you don't, you are not capable of seeing what you're doing to other people. And it's heartbreaking. It really is. Um, And I'm sure it's lonely. And, you know, I comfort myself now by reminding myself that I showed up, you know, in, in broken ways because I was who I was, but I was honest and I showed up willing to love someone every day. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't make the best choices and I did stay when I should have said, this is absurd and I'm, I'm not going to put up with this, but we seek out, as I said earlier, we seek out people and we click with, (laughs) with people who mirror our dysfunction reasons right so that we can learn the lessons we need to learn and I don't say that as a way of of excusing you know abuse in any form physical emotional psychological Um, I say it as I guess encouragement toward understanding that you can learn and grow from the things that hurt you the most and in fact I believe that you can grow and learn the most from the things that hurt you the most um, well, there's a book called that I read called Radical Forgiveness, and the whole premise of the book is you're going to be given the exact same scenario your whole entire life until you figure it out. You're always gonna, <laughs> you're always going to get this exact thing until you figure it out, and then you figure it out, and then you're never going to care anymore because you you'll finally learned the the, the thing that yeah. you needed to to do. And we seek out these types of people. In, in a well, some people don't. You know, some people they're they're so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they get a real wolf in sheep's clothing, and it's a real shock to them. But yeah, for the yeah, for the yeah. people that grew up in a dysfunctional home or with, um, you know, a lot of people have a parent that was not around, even though they might have uh, you know a loving one parent, but you know, sometimes their mother died, or there's a lot. There's a piece missing. Um, yeah, they they attract. Or they'll they'll encounter that situation. There's some lucky ones. Like uh, we have a past person on the show named Lexi who grew up in a dysfunctional home, and she miraculously found the, a great person uh, right away. But then there's a lot of us who mm-hmm. who will find uh, the challenge, the person we're supposed to, who's not, who's, who's terrible. Um, yeah. And but you know, when we overcome it and are able to look at you know, how we were um, broken down. Because when you look at how we were broken down, you can see these are all of our insecurities. These are the things we, you know, need to work on. And Mm -hmm. so in the aftermath here, 
what have uh, have you been tried? Uh, have you been hoovered back again, or are there attempts to hoover back? Oh, oh, you! What a good question. Yes, yes, I have. Because um, it sounds yeah, like she's a I hooverer. Have... <laughs> yeah, see, um, you know, when I finally definitively, and this was after some intense trickle through thing, also where. She told me, you know, well, yes, I did sleep with one person, but it was just one time and it didn't mean anything um, to then it being, well, she was seeing someone, um, but it was just one person and it wasn't the same because they weren't me or something. And then uh, to it being, well, she actually before that it was, she was messaging a bunch of different men um, because, and this I think was my favorite part, uh, or I wouldn't understand because I'm gay. And she's bi. So it would look a lot worse to somebody who's just gay and not bi. And I was like, I don't know if you understand how many people you're offending when you say that. Because it is certainly not just me. Um, In reality, so just- <laughs> we, you have no idea what the number could be. Like how far no, it went and I back. Never I never will. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never will. And actually, one of the last times we spoke, I was like, can you just tell me, like, can you just give me dates? Like, can I know whether or not you did this while we were together? Like, did, like, can you just tell me? She was like, no, because you won't hear it. I was like, what does that mean? What does that even, what does that sentence even mean? I won't hear facts about what, ha- like, just whatever. So, but it occurred to me, I was like, oh, you don't even remember all the lies you've told me. And so you can't orchestrate them in a way that is flattering enough to your circumstance to appropriately respond to my question. So cool. I'm just never going to know, um, which sucks and is really painful. And, you know, she did this thing too throughout our relationship also where she would constantly say, it's not about you. It's not about you. This is about me. It's not about you. And she did the same thing, you know, about her having slept with other people. And given my sexual traumas and just, like, how re-traumatizing and devastating it was for me, to hear again then, well, it's not about you, was undermining in a way that I don't even know I can communicate properly. Like, it was, it, like, hey, you're not even worth the consideration of my actions peripherally. Right. Like I care so little for you and the things that you've gone through that I will not will not even bring the thought of you into what I'm doing in my life and how it might impact you. Um, yeah. So, so, there, so yeah, there's a trickle truth. And then the hoovering started once I uh, put up the boundary totally. Um, you know, she would drop mail off for me pretty frequently or I'd come home and there'd you know be dog treats at the door. Um you know, another time she left me candy and a note saying, like, I'll always love you. Um, can, you know, I'm sorry for everything that happened, which is still not accepting responsibility for what you did. Um, and then she showed up at my house one night, you know, and asked if we could talk. It was like 1130 at night. She was dressed in a, she was beautifully done up, right? I looked like a trash bag because I just climbed out of bed. I was like, are you serious? Is this how we're, whatever. But so, you know, I went down and she's like, I just want to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry. I, you know, it was the biggest mistake of my life. I wish that I could take it back and, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay, well, since you're here, I'm just going to ask you some questions. And she was like, well, I'm really tired. I'm like, no, you don't get to show up at my house at fucking midnight and then, you know, not allow me to contribute to a conversation you started. Like, it was just, I was still trying to get clarity, you know, and I'm, I'm still coming around to the reality that I'll never get it three different people independently of one another told me it was emotional abuse. 
Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's, the seesaw is leaning one way. And, yeah, that was actually pretty impactful, too. Having a friend, a therapist, and a mentor say to me at different times, like, hey, this is not, this is really not okay. Like, this is actually abuse. Um, and, but, yeah, you know, and it's, it sounds sort of, uh, cliche, but you don't think that you'll let that happen, right? You're like, well, no, because I think in admitting that you, there's an admission of um, being out of control, right, or of helplessness, and nobody wants to say that about themselves. Um, but yeah, so, so so sorry, I got a little off track there. Yeah, there was the hoovering, um, and I actually just recently set reset the boundary, and even in our final interaction it was obvious like that it would continue if I didn't set it firmly. Right. Like if I didn't finally say, listen, this has to not be a thing. So before we finish, uh, Mm -hmm. do you have any parting words for everyone? Um, I think just that (laughs) it'll be okay. And I know that, that that sounds, again, really trite maybe, but focus on yourself, love yourself first, right? Look at yourself, do your inner work. It's the most important work that you can do in your entire life, right? Because you have the opportunity to break patterns that have been playing out probably generationally for a long time. And you you are absolutely capable and you are absolutely loved. And yeah, I wish... Everybody out there, the best. Well, Rachel, I thank you for being on this show. I hope you enjoy mm-hmm. being on this show. And I hope that your sobriety keeps going and you're working in that field, uh, which I'm sure is rewarding. Mm-hmm. And, it is, yeah. Um, you know, I, I wish you well in your recovery. I'm sure you will speak again. And we'll have you when we eventually make us another podcast, which is our return guest podcast. Hopefully you will come back and we can have a regular chit chat and just, you know, uh, have find out where you are in your healing process and play some dumb games, maybe watch a movie at the same time. Who knows? But, but thank you for being on the show mm-hmm. once again. And for everyone out there listening, I hope you have a good night. And that was my conversation with Rachel. And I can't wait to get back into contact with Rachel a few months down the road to see how she's doing. That really was a divine intervention story. There there was someone looking over her on that day when she almost lost her sobriety, but she made it through and thank God for that. So before I leave, just want to remind everyone to come to our Facebook group because it's hopping these days, facebook.com slash groups slash Narcissist Apocalypse. That's how you get there. And the group is fantastic. We had a great week there. Everyone is friendly and is helpful and is kind and courteous and they listen. So come and be part of that group. And lastly, again, if you want to be part of our Letters to Narcissist episode, we have a voicemail recorder on our website. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right-hand side of the page. It's always floating around and hard to miss. You click on it once, twice, three times, as many times as you need. We're accumulating these letters for our volume two of that episode. And that's it. The show is over. Be well, and bye for now. (laughs) 